Today, we begin a new series called Community Mixtape. Uh, now, of course, you, I hope you know this. Mixtapes are what you give your special someone uh, or friends, all your favorite music or the music you wanted them to listen to. Now, you guys today call them quote-unquote playlists, and they... They, they basically, Spotify does them for you, so. But back in the day when I was a kid making mixtapes, it meant you would have to make them from the radio, like the actual radio. And tapes were expensive, and so you stole your mom's Neil Diamond cassette tape, and you would put a small folded uh, piece of paper on the corner of the tape so you can record over her cassette tape, and you would pop it in, the, in your like, little cassette player, and you'd turn on the radio, and you would wait and you would wait, and you would wait for that song to come on, right? You would wait for End of the Road by Boys to Men, or like <laughs> November Rain by Guns N' Roses, or whatever it is, and you would, first of all, you would learn deep patience. I mean like, like really good patience. And you would record and play, you hit record and play at the same time, and you get the song you wanted. And you would do that over and over again until you had a mixtape, and then you would give it to someone really special. And it meant something, because you spent a whole weekend doing it or whatever. <laughs> well, we're calling this series Community Mixtape because it's all the like songs or teachings that I wanted to give you at the end of our year of authentic community. And uh, they will be random mix of different teachings that uh, w things that we've learned from the, the whole year of authentic community kind of put together in a series. And, um, and some random kind of one-off. They were just kind of putting in this like miscellaneous series called Community Mixtapes. So it's gonna be a random mix of, of, um, of sermons and a random mix of teachers as we uh, end our year in authentic community up until Advent. Today I wanna to start with the subject of how to disagree in community. I wanna talk about how we disagree. Um, Ash asked me, what are you teaching on this week? And I said, I'm teaching on how to disagree. And she said, oh, you've been practicing. I, I, I see you've been practicing. Uh, and I said, no, I haven't. And she said, exactly. Um, so that literally happened too. That's not a, that's not a lie. Uh, so a little disclaimer, today won't be new information per se. Rather, it will be going over the last three series that were really difficult to process and process them through the lens of how to disagree. So if you discuss this teaching in your small group, don't be afraid to bring things up that you were offended over three months ago or whatever. So with that, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, and um, to our text, and I'll read it, and then I'll, I'll pray. Verse 30, uh, and do not offend or do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Verse one in chapter five, follow God's example therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as a, just as Christ loved us and gave up himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word, let's pray. Lord, um, I, I pray that our church would enter into a very important season of reflection over the things that 
have been said or not been said over the last several months of this year. As we end, would you make us a more committed to each other community, one that's able to listen and hold the space of disagreement? I know that it is so easy um, in our culture, maybe not easy, but easier to uh, just leave. And when things get hard and we don't agree with them, to leave. We curate everything in our lives these days, everything. Um, our Netflix is curated and our Spotify is curated and our news is curated and our Facebook's curated. Everything is. And so when we f encounter people in our church that we don't agree with, it's really hard to stay with them. And it's way easier just to leave. And we just acknowledge that's in the room and we say, God, make us your community made up of a bunch of different misfits that are all together under Christ. And do this by the power of your spirit, not by the power of my words, but the power of your spirit. In Christ's strong name, amen. I knew that when I taught on race, and then a month later, I taught on sexuality, that I would have two different groups of people frustrated in our church. I knew that there would be people in our church that thought I was getting very political by talking about race. That SF had changed me or our church and that the things we were saying from the pulpit and the things that they heard from their community members were the same thing that they're getting from progressive city folk. And they're like, this church has changed and I can't stay here anymore and I'm leaving. But then I taught on sexuality and I knew people would not, would, I knew people would put me and our church square in the category of being a traditional church that didn't fit into the cultural milieu of SF. In other words, I knew that in the race series, people would accuse us of being liberal and progressive. And in the sexuality series, we'd be accused of being traditional and fundamental. And that people from both sides would leave our church. I knew this and I anticipated it and it still bothered me when it happened. When hundreds of people left our church over the past several months and several leaders left our church, even, our, the, be, even between the two services, the room just feels, you can just feel it in the room, you can see it in the room, ever since we began to talk about these things. And I knew it, and it still surprised me and bothered me when it happened. How people were exhausted and having these conversations in their communities and just decided to leave. Like they're so tired of these conversations. Or how people were tired of being in contended spaces that didn't, and they didn't feel safe anymore. Like I don't know if I, the, this community feels safe anymore, or this church feels safe anymore. And I'm tired of arguing all the time or having these contended things uh, that we're always talking about. I don't agree with this church, so I would much rather leave and go to a different church and I actually have, I'm kind of friends with all the pastors in the city pretty much. And so when they say, hey, so-and-so came from reality and they said, because you were talking about race, they left. And I said, you're gonna get the same thing here. And so I don't know what they did with that. But I, I mean, you hear this stuff. And so we have to talk about how can we disagree in community and still look at the table of communion, gathered around the body and the blood of Christ and not let disagreements divide us. How do we do that? Even huge topics like race and sex. And so I guess the question is this morning, is it possible to profoundly disagree with someone 
and love that person truly and deeply at the same time? Is it possible to hold deep convictions and simultaneously embrace those in your own community who reject your deep convictions? Can you sit in your group and hold these deeply, deeply held convictions, things that you've wrestled over, and then someone else in your group rejects those deep convictions? Can you stay in fellowship? Can you stay in community? Jesus would say yes. Jesus shows us that the answer is actually yes to that. In our text, which is a text on Christian ethics in a nutshell, Paul says that the motivation behind all compassion that we are to share with one another, all forgiveness that we're to offer one another, all kindness that we treat one another with is in fact, the, the motivation behind all of those is in fact Christ having forgiven us. Christ in having shown compassion to us. Christ in having shown kindness to us. We are to live a life of love and grace as God's people because this is exactly what you received from Jesus. On, our, on my kitchen counter, this, uh, where I make pour over coffee every single morning, Ash um, writes the, with, uses these erasable pens and writes a note to me almost every morning. And uh, it's super sweet and super funny sometimes because it's usually a, sometimes a drawing or a funny quote or a song of a lyric or something. Uh, today, what she wrote actually struck me pretty deeply. She wrote the lyrics to Oh Happy Day, like the whole thing, right? Oh Happy Day, and she even did in parentheses the echo part, right? Oh Happy Day, and then an echo. Oh Happy Day, and like parentheses. Oh Happy Day, and then in parentheses. Oh Happy Day, like all that stuff, right? When Jesus washed, and then parentheses when Jesus washed. All, the, whole, the whole thing. This recently, um, over just the summer and then even today and all, I mean, other things that have been happening, happening in and around my life, I've been fairly sad and bummed out and tired. And when I get tired and hurt, I get angry and short-tempered and I kind of fall into perfectionism a little bit and um, a lot bit. And um, I'm trying to pull out of it and spending a lot of time in prayer and silence and meditation. And I only get glimpses of pulling out of it. And then it goes, comes right back on me. And I'm sure you've been there. Maybe you are there now. And then it hit me when I saw this. Even this morning, even preparing, uh, getting ready for this morning, um, I, I saw this written on, on my counter. And, I, and, I, and it just hit, I don't know why it was so far away from me, but it hit me that Jesus washed my sins away. Like he has loved me and caused me to come alive. He has shown me grace and love when I was living as an enemy of his. And he died for me and he pursued me when he didn't, he didn't agree with me. He still pursued me. And it's not just that, oh, he died for me, but it's, it's like this um, emotional kind of wording of, oh, happy day. Like this is a happy, I don't feel happy. Like there's not that many things that feel happy in me, but what a happy day that when I realize what Christ has done for me, that he's literally washed my sins away. And what Paul is saying is that this kind of thing is the motivation. The reason why we 
reach out to each other in kindness and forgiveness and compassion is because what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done to redeem us, what he's done uh, to bring us into his purposes in the world. He's saved us, redeemed us, not just so that we can say, oh, happy day, we're forgiven, but that he could bring us into his purposes for the world. And what are his purposes for the world? The reconciliation and the redemption of everything. This is why Christ has cleansed us. This is why Christ has saved us. He's brought us in so that we can participate in the reconciliation and the redemption of everything. So when Paul says, this is how I want you to act toward each other in your community group, in your church, even though you disagree, it's because that's how Christ acted toward you. Commentators call this the reflective ethic, meaning we are to reflect God's attitude towards other people. We are to reflect the way God has treated us toward other people. So we are to reflect to other people how God sees them in Christ. We are to reflect to to other people how Christ has acted toward us in forgiveness and dying for our sin. We are to reflect God's kindness that he shows to us to other people. We are to reflect God's kindness that he wants to give to other people. We're to reflect that to other people. And Jesus is very, very serious about this. He's, about, he's serious about us treating each other with the same motivation that he's treated us. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Um, if you're in Ephesians, it's left. Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew 18, uh, verse 23. This is a, a parable that Jesus teaches called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began to settle, he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. How much, how much is that? I have no idea. Just bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And this servant fell on his knees before him. He said, be patient with me. He begged, I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he can pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and, went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed which he can't in jail, by the way. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is, if, by the way, if you think Jesus is like this nice person, this is not, this is, this is a really harsh thing that Jesus says. And he says, this is how, this is how you have to treat each other. I mean, there's punishment in here. There's torture. There's hell. I mean, this is all like, this is all Jesus' stuff right here. All of it. And Jesus says, this is how serious I am that you forgive each other. Even zooming out, this is how serious I am about treating each other how I treated you. And so if I 
disagreed with you, but then still died for your sins, if I disagreed with your entire way of seeing the world and yet I laid my life down for you, this is how I want you to treat each other. When you profoundly disagree with someone who is either sitting across from you in CG, community group, or sitting on the other side of a tweet, you will have this temptation to treat that person with so much anger, with so much contempt, that you make them less than human. And in your mind, you make them less than Christian. And at that moment, Jesus would square you up and say, that is not how I treated you. This is how I treated you when I profoundly disagreed with you. I laid my life down for you and I showed you mercy. So let's get back to the original question here. Is it possible to hold deep convictions and simultaneously embrace those in your own community who reject your deep convictions? And the answer is yes for two reasons. Thank you. That's really good. That was Ralph. <laughs> I have stories. Yes. You do. We, we do. Anyway, sorry. Ralph and I have really long meetings where we disagree about certain things and we just draw together and be close. So for two reasons. Why can you do this? For two reasons. One, this is how Christ treated you. Why can you be in community with people that you don't, that you hold the deep convictions and, and yet you're still in community when other person rejects your conviction? Because that's exactly how Christ treated you. But secondly, this is exactly how Christ chose his own friends. And what I mean by that is when Jesus chose his disciples, he chose people who fundamentally and profoundly disagreed with each other. Matthew 10, turn there, if, or it's on the screen, I think, I don't know, but just turn there. You're already in Matthew, go left, right? Just go left, chapter 10. These, uh, uh, verse 2, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bar Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alf, 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 whatever, and I honestly don't know how to say that word, um, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so the only two disciples that get descriptions of who they were, other than, you know, Judas who betrays him, the only other people who get like descriptors of who they were or who they are when they were called to be disciples are Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. Now, this is super profound, and this can't be lost on us, especially in our cultural moment when the church is dividing over so many political things right now. Matthew was Jewish, and at the time, the Jews were occupied by the Roman Empire. So Matthew, being a Jewish tax collector, was one of the biggest forms of being a traitor to his people. He was working for the government as a traitor, collecting taxes from the Jewish people in the name of Rome who were occupying the Jewish people. He was not liked by the Jewish people at all. A zealot was a revolutionary, an anti-Roman movement in Israel. Simon was a zealot. So you have this pro-Jewish, anti-Roman political revolutionary who is Simon and a pro-Roman Jewish traitor government official, Matthew. And they're both part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. 
you couldn't get it, get any more left wing and right wing. You couldn't get any more liberal and conservative mentalities. You couldn't get a bigger disagreement than these two people. And yet Jesus unites them to himself and then unites them to each other in a cause higher than the government or the anti-government. And that is the kingdom of God. To be more pointed and not to make it all about politics, Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the Zealot was who they were. It was their identity. And what's really hard around conversations around race and sexuality is you're talking about people's identity. And when you talk about people's identity, you're going to offend them. And when you have two people that either ignore race or ignore how sexuality plays out in a church context or in theology, you will have people deeply offended because of their identity. Put aside a politics for, for a second. Put aside all that stuff. Just who they, who they were. These, this is what, this is Matthew's identity was, that, was this. His job, his career, is everything. Simon was a zealot. This is like what he gave his life to. And Jesus takes these two people and says, you have to live together and work together and work out your differences. And I'm going to change who you are at the core during this process. I'm going to take two different people and I'm going to put you together. And the process of you being together and not agreeing is what's going to change you. See, Jesus didn't zap them and then they became agreeable and knew people emotionally. That's romanticizing the scriptures. That's not reality. I read this quote to you in the first sermon of the year, one where I talked about authentic community, the very first sermon of the year, when I said, this is what we're going to do for the whole year. And it's a quote from Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family. And it says this. I want to read it to you again because I think it's important. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow, people who leave do not grow. Let me say what I'm saying. The church is and has always been the place where different identities, ideologies, diversity of backgrounds and thoughts come under the banner of Jesus and through the crucible of genuine Christian life our loyalties become the same. Christ and the kingdom he is bringing. So I guess I want to say this. Disagreements are just part of the gig. If you are in the church, disagreements are just part of the gig. If you are looking for a church that agrees with you in everything, that is so backwards. That is so... Um, this is why when... When people that agree with me come up to me and say, oh, that was good, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I'm like, okay, whatever, I'm that, fine, great. I, I wanna talk with people that didn't agree but stayed. Like, I don't agree with everything you're saying, um, but don't come up today, I don't know if I have the emotional energy, but come up later, right? 
But like, I disagree with everything you're saying and I want to have a conversation about it and I'm here. Yes, that's, that's, that's what should be happening all the time in our community. Now, how do we disagree in community? If a part of the life of a church, any church that's not just a club of like-minded people, how do you disagree well? And the key is well, okay? Because anyone can disagree. But how do you do it well? So a, couple, a few things. Try to get very practical. First, number one, how do you disagree well in community? One, stay and accept disagreement as part of being in God's new family. I know this might be emotionally taxing on some people, how hard it is. I will say for certain people of um, a certain um, race background or ethnic background or, or sexual identity, this is harder for you than anyone else. And I understand that, especially when those two things collide. But stay. I'm asking you. This is, I mean, this is part and parcel of, you read the, uh, the New Testament, you have uh, Jews and Greeks who kind of opposed each other. You have slaves and free people who opposed each other. You have men and women who were like separated ultimately. And Jesus brings them all together. If you're looking for a church of people just exactly like you, that, that is not the New Testament church. It is always made up of people that profoundly disagree and then are kind of reoriented under a, the new rhetoric of uh, Jesus' family and uh, his kingdom purposes in the world. So Stay. And accept disagreements as just being a part of God's family. Again, from the first sermon of the year, I shared this quote, and I think it's fitting here, from uh, Sherry Turkle's definition of community in her book, Alone Together. She says this, community is constituted by physical proximity, shared concerns, real consequences, and common responsibilities. I think this, keep this up for a second. I think this is really important. Because physical proximity means something. We need other people to show up in our lives and to show us what God is like tangibly. To move toward us even when we're angry. To move toward us even when we want to pull away. To move toward us. We need physical proximity in community. We need shared concerns. We need a concern for each other to become more and more like Christ. We need a concern for one another to be to be caught up into what God's doing in this city, to be kingdom-minded people. We need real consequences for not being there for one another. We need to tell each other when we've hurt each other. Being hurt in community, is, by the way, is another part of the thing. If you're hurt in the community, uh, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, I think, I forget how it's worded, betrayal are the kisses of an enemy or hate or I don't know, whatever. Would anyone know the word? Deceitful? Deceitful? Thank you. Very good Bible student, you win. That was great. I forgot it. Deceitful are, and I think this is really important in community, is that you will be hurt in community. You just will. You will have people that say, I think um, the, the way of Jesus is, is not, is, is, wouldn't uh, agree with you here. And you're like, that's so hurtful that you would say that to me. And I think in the end, you want people in your life like that. You don't want people to go, you know what, whatever, whatever is all good. You know what, whatever. As long as you just love God, you can just do whatever you want. That's, you don't want people like that. You want people that, that uh, there are real consequences for, um, for following Jesus in community where you kind of square each other up and tell, tell it like it is and are able to do that. And lastly, common responsibilities where you share the responsibility of Christian life together. We share. We kind of bear one another's burdens and responsibilities. 
So first thing is you have to stay and accept that difficulties and disagreements are part of it. But two, secondly, you have to listen and make sure you understand where the other person is coming from. This takes time. This might honestly not, um, not allow the time in your CG for this to happen. This might need to be, um, for example, our, our community group, we, we were kind of going through some terminal disagreements, whatever, and we found that we just hadn't have time in our community group to go through it all. So we all committed to just in an email, everyone sh share what they needed to share in an email and everyone would process everyone else's email and then come to group and kind of like talk about what we all said. It was super effective. It might just need a one-off discussion over coffee or something, but it's important to listen to each other to make sure you understand where the other person is coming from. This is where I'll refer to our sermon in the Emotionally Healthy Relationship series on listening deeply. Go back and listen to that. But the two things, the two biggest takeaways from listening well are this. Listening well require presence and reflecting back. Presence, showing up in, in each other's life and then reflecting back what you hear them saying. Not just reflecting back what you hear them saying, but even the emotions behind it. So, for example, I just said to you that our community group was going through some whatever turmoil, whatever this last uh, uh, month or so. And um, I think for me, I, again, I've just been in this really difficult place and I was kind of trying to share it with the community, but also frustrated with some community stuff. And oftentimes when I'm tired and angry, it's better to be aloof for me than to be, to be angry at people because I sometimes say things I can't take back. So I'll just be aloof. I'll just show up and I'm just like distracted and aloof. And then I had two members in our community group that have been there the, kind of like the longest uh, with us in this community just separately um, moved toward me and Ashley and said, um, hey, I, I would love, one of them said, hey, I'd love to come over for dinner um, and just process what, with what, what you're going through and where you're at and what you said. Another one sent me an email saying, I want to reflect back what you said and tell me if I got it right and I'd love to have a, a phone conversation. Both of these these people kind of moved toward me and just reflected back how they experienced me, what I was saying, and they really wanted to listen and draw out what was going on in my heart. And it was so effective. It was so meaningful to me. It was so helpful to me. And it, it was really helpful for our group too to, to like get past what we were kind of stuck in. Now, you don't have to agree with the person. When you're drawing out whatever, you don't have to agree with them. You have to you have to listen, though, and you have to understand them, where they're coming from. It doesn't mean you have to agree, but you have to repeat back and understand where they're coming from. Now, what if you've gone through these things and you deeply and emotionally disagree with your community group or your friend? What if you've gone through this stuff? What if you've you stayed and you're like, oh, yeah, uh, we disagree. And what if you like have listened and uh, to each other and you've repeated back and reflected back what the other person's saying? What if you've got there, but you're still, um, you're still in like emotional disagreement where you're like mad at each other? How do you engage an open space between you and someone else with all the aggressions that surround us in disagreement, especially around race and sexuality? Now, so I'll give you three things. Very, I hope they're practical. So after you've been present to someone and you've listened to someone, I'd say first, start with agreement. Start with agreement on what you agree with and then move on from what you have in common, 
possibly exposing the antagonism at work. So this is what I mean by this. Start with, start with like, okay, well, this is what we agree on. And then start moving on to what you have in common. And hopefully the, the, the disagreement, the anger, the whatever, whatever's there, like that keeps you guys kind of locked and like locked horns, whatever that is, starts to reveal itself as you do this. So for example, let's say the race conversation. Let's say after the teachings, there's two groups of people in your group that do not agree with what we've been talking about around race. So example of this. Uh, say someone in dominant culture, someone white. I know we're bringing this all back up. You might be triggered right now. Like, oh, I thought we were done with the series. Okay, no, we're not. Race. <laughs> dominant culture, white, in group, don't agree. And you say, race, yes. Racism in America's history, history is horrific. And how can you place 400 years of slavery as a white person at my feet? That's valid. That is a valid statement to make. And some people, people of color need to hear that from their white friend. Like, how do you do that? I don't even know what to do. And this allows the conversation to continue with something like, well, what do you think the church, or what do you think I, as a person of color, are asking you to do? When you say we're laying 400 years of slavery at your feet, what do you think we're asking you to do? And that person might say, I feel like you're asking me to fix it. And then now the absurdity is shown, right? Of course not. That's absurd. How would we ever expect you to fix it? Sometimes agreeing and just moving the conversation on allows the absurdity to come out. Sometimes when we start with agreement with each other, we can start to see the absurdity in our thoughts or the absurdity in our arguments or the fact that neither of us are trying to really get anywhere. We're just trying to fight. So you guys keep agreeing with each other and then it might just come, you know what, I just want to fight with you. That's all I want to do. Sometimes this will happen with Ash and I. Like, I'll just start picking fights. And she'll just stop. I'm like, what, what, are you, what are you doing right now? Like, what are you trying to get at? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to get you angry at me so we can get angry at each other. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to do right now. I'm like... Sometimes agreeing and moving the conversation forward shows the absurdity. I think of, uh, of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. They bring her in and say that she was caught in the very act of adultery. And Moses' law says that we should stone her. And Jesus says, yes. And he just moves the conversation forward. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Any one of you without sin, you start. Cast the first stone. And what it does, when Jesus agrees with them, yeah, the Mo Moses' law does say that. And I think that, yeah, um, so whoever here without, without sin cast the first stone. And what starts to be revealed there is the absurdity in what they're doing. They just want blood. The guy is nowhere around. They're not without sin. And so one by one, stones fall and everyone leaves. Sometimes agreeing, like starting with what we can agree on allows the argument to move forward to where if there is absurdity, it's exposed. And if someone has the humility to go, okay, maybe it's absurd to think that I can fix slavery. I can't, but I can, I can lament. I'll lament with you. Is that what, you're, is that what we're, you're asking of me? Great, I think I can do that part. What are you asking to be more educated? Okay, I wanna learn, I wanna learn. Like whatever, just exposing the absurdity. Next, secondly, make observations and ask questions that reveal contradictions at work. Now this again takes a lot of humility and time, 
but just start to make some observations about the other person, what they're saying, um, ask questions. And what will happen is maybe some contradictions will start to, to show up. To the point that, now the point here is not to make enemies. The point here is not to demonize each other, but to open space and to try to show and deal with the contradictions at hand. Example, the sexuality conversa- conversation. Let's say you're having this conversation in your community group. And you're reading, we're, we were spending all kinds of time um, in, in, in Jesus' teachings in Matthew in and around sexuality. And imagine someone in your group saying, it seems you are wanting people to obey this part of the Bible and not that part of the Bible. That's a valid point. That's really, really important. So the question might look something like this. Is it true that you want people to obey the whole thing Jesus says about marriage being between a husband and a wife, but what you are doing with the whole bit around what Jesus says about divorce, it seems you're ignoring that part or the church is ignoring that part. What do you do with that inconsistency? That seems inconsistent and not fair and not right. And I think that's a really important valid point to bring up. And so you, you hold up this, you're like, yeah, what are we doing with that? Now, it, the, the conversation go, can go a step further. I know the church is really guilty of the inconsistency there. A good follow-up question might be, so do you think it's good to say you get to do this thing that Jesus says not to do and I get to do this thing that Jesus says not to do and we're both okay? Well, of course not. That's not, that's absurd as well. And that's inconsistent as well. Now, of course, this can go on and on and on, but this is what you kind of want to do in your conversations. You just want to bring up inconsistencies. This seems inconsistent to me in your argument, in what you're, what you're saying. Well, this seems, this seems inconsistent to me. And it's really important to have these conversations around consistency because a lot of time when we're talking about these conversations, they can become very, very emotionally charged. And you want to just... And obviously, you're trying to deal as much as you can with the scriptures, and you're trying to point out inconsistencies in what Jesus teaches. And it's really, if I would recommend you to try to begin in Jesus' teachings. Like, start there and then work out. Don't, like, start in, like, Leviticus. This is not a, not a good thing, right? <laughs> start in Jesus' teachings. Now, um, you must do this in a spirit of love, and not anger, and not trying to wound. So I think of Jesus in Luke 20, when he, when he was asked about paying taxes, right? A very political question. Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Roman's an oppressor. Do we pay taxes to an oppressor? And Jesus could get really in trouble for saying, well, no, don't pay taxes. Like he would, he would probably be crucified a few years earlier or whatever, right? Um, and if you said, no, don't, don't pay taxes, he would like lead a revolt. So... Um, So Jesus asks a question and he makes an observation. Whose image is on the coin? And they're like, Caesar's image. And then Jesus says, well, give give it to him. It's his image. Give, Give to Caesar what Caesar's and then give to God what's God's. I mean, this, obviously, this is a drop the mic moment. This is like, if you said this in, a, in your community group, you're like, give to, if you did this sort of thing, only Jesus can do that thing, by the way, right? You think you did it. You're like, I just did it. And everybody's like, what did you just say? <laughs> now, only Jesus can do that. But what Jesus does is he points out, he, he makes observations. And he points out inconsistencies that allow you, when you don't agree with something, to find a wise way forward. Is it the right way forward? 
sometimes you're not arguing about right and wrong. Sometimes you're arguing about wisdom. How do we, not all the time, but some of the times you're arguing about wisdom. How do we carry on uh, faithfulness to Jesus in community? Lastly, do not set out to humiliate or defeat the other person. This sometimes becomes your, um, in the middle of an argument, um, it starts off civil and great and communal and beautiful. And then somewhere in the middle, someone says something to offend the other person. And then you want to offend back. And then at, just like an hour into it, you just want to humiliate and defeat them. And you want them to cry and go home saying you're right. And that is not the reason. That's not the purpose of why you do this. You must purpose in your heart to reject winning as the goal. You have to do this. Winning is not the goal. Friendship, communion, and community is the goal. That's the ultimate goal here. Allow something to shift in your heart where you want to gain a brother or a sister. That's what you're really trying to do. I think of uh, Ruthie Kim who um, preached last Sunday. When I say Ruthie preaches, Ruthie preaches and you know this and it's beautiful and amazing. And Ruthie and I have been friends for a, a long time, about almost 10 years now. And her and I disagree on uh, secondary theological things but our primary uh, and importance to us. Does that make sense? So the secondary in theology, but for us, they're like, they, they mean a lot of things. So her and I have, have uh, argued, debated. One time, I don't really recall this, but she recalls a time where we went out to dinner with um, our spouses and then her and I, after dinner, were, were arguing and it got heated and somehow we're in the middle of the street fighting. Um, I don't remember this. Um, <laughs> But she remembers it pretty vividly. Like we're, I don't know why. We're just like in the middle of the street just, and Brian and Ashley were like, guys, do you guys want to come and not get killed by a car or whatever? Um, and this is the thing. For, I think for Ruthie and I, in our disagreements um, over the years, it's always, we've tried to keep friendship and mutual respect in the center. And what it's done for me is I can't think of an, uh, another person that I've, I've disagreed with as much as Ruthie and have drawn so much deeper in friendship and become so much better of a person because of her. And, it, it, it's, and I think, um, and I, I really give her a ton of credit because what she does is like, I disagree with you and I'm moving towards you. And that is profound. When you disagree with someone and you move toward them, um, typically what we do is I disagree with you and I'm moving away from you because I disagree with you. And I'm distancing myself because I don't think you're quote safe. And um, I don't know if we're ever promised safety in the Christian life, um, but whatever, I won't get into that. That's probably a different conversation. But that's what we do. We just like move away from, I don't really think you're a safe person. But Ruthie doesn't do that. Ruthie uh, doesn't agree with someone and she moves closer to them. And I think that is a really profound thing. We need, we need to, when we don't agree with each other, we can't set out to humiliate or defeat each other. We have to seek to understand rather than be understood. Where we have to seek to move toward one another in community and toward God's heart for the world. That is like central. I'll close with this. If again, Bibles, uh, turn left into the Old Testament, into the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 24. I'll end here because, um, because I feel like this might be where some of us are at in, in this space that we find ourselves uh, after all these really difficult topics this year. Psalm 42, I'm just going to read, um, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not that long. Verse 1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul, so my soul pants for you, my God. 
my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go to meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one. With shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for yet, for will I yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Amen. The scholar Walter, Walter Brueggemann has noted that all the pain and suffering that are in the book of Psalms, which is like the human book of all the emotions a human can go through when betrayed by a friend or a community or your enemies or where God disappoints or you feel like God disappoints. He says there's a three-part pattern in almost every single psalm. He says it's this, orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. He says the psalms follow this pattern over and over and over again, where there's orientation, where the psalm starts out in which life makes sense and we enjoy God. And then there's this disorientation that takes place in which we are hurt and suffering and wondering where God is. And then typically at the end of the psalm, there's a new orientation in which God breaks in and we meet him in a new way. And I think this is how our how community and life with God feels like most of the time. There are times of orientation where life makes sense and we enjoy God, where our community makes sense and we're enjoying community and everything is great. And then we teach on race and then we teach on sexuality. And then this disorientation happens where we're hurt and we're suffering and we're wondering where God is in the midst of this and we don't agree and we're angry at each other. And there's this moment of like disorientation where we feel like things are coming apart, where nothing's stable, where you're emotionally very fragile, all this stuff happens. And then God breaks through. God breaks through in conversations and pouring out our heart and prayer and being vulnerable. And God breaks in and we meet him and our community in a new way. The temptation is when we hit disorientation, the temptation is to leave. The temptation is to leave God. The temptation is to leave community. The temptation is to leave the quote unquote church. That's always the temptation for every single person. You're not new. If you feel that you're not special, everyone goes through that. Can we sit and can we wait and can we say, why, my soul are, you, soul, are you downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. We can wait for God to break in and give us a new orientation. 
for our life with him, for our community. We wait on the Lord. We wait. Let's stand and pray. Would you open your hands up in a posture of receiving from God? It might be your open hands right now might for you mean uh, God, my soul is so downcast right now. And I'm just holding it open for you because I don't know what else to do. For some of us, it is this place of receiving. I'm willing to receive a new orientation. Come quickly. Whatever it is, let's just, for just a second of silence, offer our hearts, our minds, our disorientation to God. God, you seek truth in our inner parts. If there's any part of us that is holding back from you, that's just like not being honest with our disorientation, not being honest with our pain, would you invite us just to open up, to confess to you, our, my soul is downcast. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? And we might not even be able to squeak the words out, put your hope in God yet. We might not even emotionally be there. But I pray we would be honest with you, God. Bring truth in our inner parts now. As we turn to you, thank you, God, for, for the people that are here. They show up. Even there, if there's disorientation, even if there is, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to handle this. They're here. They're moving towards you. I pray in the power of your spirit that you would show up, that you would bring new orientation. I want it. I desire it for our congregation. Bring it, Lord. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.